Well, happy Holy Week, everyone. What are you guys all looking at me for? I know what day it actually is. <laughs> I know it's actually the first of November. I know that there are other holidays coming up. But in our verse-by-verse journey through the scriptures, for our purposes, it's Holy Week. And we're going to be here for a while. It's set, we got the next seven chapters of the Gospel of Matthew is dedicated to Holy Week, which is interesting to think about in one week, the most important week of all time. If you had, so much is going to be said there. I'm very excited that, that we've entered this stage in our journey through Matthew. And one of the first things we're going to begin to see, beginning at this passage, is Jesus' rightful authority as king over Jerusalem be established as we pick up going verse by verse, beginning at verse 1, where it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, scholars are actually divided as to whether or not this incident was because Jesus omnisciently and supernaturally knew that this donkey and this colt would be available, and he just said, sent his disciples ahead to go bring them in, or if this was actually something Jesus prearranged, something that, you know, in the code word was the Lord needs them, and they would, uh, they would know that bring the colt that was uh, meant for Jesus. And when scholars I respect disagree, I'm very careful weighing in on that. But uh, I, I will say, though, it is interesting that the text seems to imply that something noteworthy is happening here. I mean, otherwise they would have just said, the, you know, they brought a donkey to him. But there's, there's, there's with this backstory and just tell them you said this, you know, there seems to be something interesting going on. But don't quote me on that. Who knows? What is uncontroversial, though, is the importance of what happened next, beginning in verse 4, that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, and they put their put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. (laughs) This is a reference to our first reading from Zechariah 9.9, where 500 years before Jesus was even born, uh, the prophet said that the king would come to them, but not come on the glorious splendor of a stallion, but would arrive in humility on a donkey's colt. Interesting. You know, there's these hints even in Old Testament passages and scriptures that the Messiah at his first coming was not going to come in great glory and to rule and to reign in power, but to come in humility, one of peace. You know, I've heard it said that Jesus did not come at his first coming to fight the Romans so much as he came to bring peace between God and sinners. Jesus at his first coming didn't come to fight the Romans, but to make peace with God and sinners. By the way, in this passage, Matthew uniquely mentions the colt and the accompanying mother donkey. That's unique to Matthew. And, you know, it makes sense as to why this other 
animal is there. Having the donkey would have been the best way to calm down this colt with the, the busyness of this noisy entrance. Having the mother donkey there would have been a calming presence to the colt. And of course, there's nothing in the prophecy that we read together from Zechariah 9 that says another animal couldn't be there. But by the way, Jesus sat only on the colt. Saying he sat on them was referring to the cloaks that they brought to them. So it was really only one animal he was riding in on in fulfillment of this prophecy from Zechariah. But by doing this so publicly and intentionally, especially if Jesus did prearrange this, Jesus is making it very clear beyond any shadow of a doubt who he knows himself to be, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, the heir to the throne of David, the one who came to save his people from their sins. And the people, based on their response, what they did next shows they got the message. As we look again down in verse 8, what did they do? Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before them and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And if you've been following with us through the scriptures, this is a radically different approach that Jesus has been doing compared to what he's been doing the last couple of chapters. Now, he's been shunning the crowds for some time now, opting for you know more private time with his disciples. He's pulling away and spending more time privately with his apostles. He's been, te- when he is in a public situation, he's teaching in parables and things that you have to really think through to understand. We've come a long way since the Sermon on the Mount in this series. So when we see Jesus now riding into Jerusalem in fulfillment of a prophecy, this is very public of him and very bold. And this is because Jesus Jesus isn't like us. He, he wasn't a type of person that either loved or hated the spotlight. He just knew when it was time. He knew that it was time for him now to enter into the spotlight. You know, we struggle with this idea in the West, you know. For us, we always want a bigger audience. We always want a, a bigger platform. We always want to pack out the pews in the building. We want a bigger this. We want a bigger, more views on social media. Goodness, every single person I know, it seems, has a podcast these days. It's fascinating. We always want bigger and bigger. But here, Jesus seems to know when the right time to shrink back from the spotlight is and when to enter into it. I'm always amazed when I look at the character of Jesus. But Jesus knows it is time to declare who he is in this final week. (laughs) Now it's... Important for us to point out that about 250 years ago or so, we fought a war in this country to guarantee that every single person here would know just about nothing about royal coronations. To this day, it's true. And myself included, because you know, here in America, we don't have all the pageantry that you have in a royal coronation. all the fancy stuff. Uh, we just swear the new person in and expect them to go to work. Same day. Okay, you're sworn in. Get to work. 
So much of the symbolism and the pageantry and the um, of this coronation of Jesus is lost on us. But the people in today's narrative who were alive in the first century, again, they got the picture that maybe we didn't get immediately right away because we're 2,000 years removed from the culture. This would have resembled a victory parade that a, a general would have, would have had when they entered into a conquered city or when a king visited a realm that he had possessed. Such a conqueror, no doubt, would ride in on a war horse, symbolizing their power and their rule and authority. But yet Jesus arrives here on a colt, symbolizing his humility and the peace that he had come to bring, revealing to us the nature of his first coming at his first coronation. And I say first, because in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus gets another coronation that is far more glorious, revealing the fullness of his glory and majesty. I'll leave that to you guys to read in your own time. And likewise, spreading their, their cloaks as the Israelites did at this time in way of the coming king was a sign of submission to their coming king. This was normative in that time. In fact, there's even an example of this happening in Scripture in 2 Corinthians 9.13. You can look that up yourself. Uh, and further, furthermore, spreading palm branches symbolized Jewish nationalism and victory. You know, palm motifs were very, very normative for Jewish culture 2,000 years ago. They still very much are. But as, especially at this time, this would have invoked the imagery of like when Simon Maccabeus uh, he uh, liberated Jerusalem around 165 BC, and Israel celebrated again by waving palm branches. So these people are getting the imagery; they're seeing it all come together. The the crowd is saying something in their response. They knew what Jesus was doing. Right down to what did they say? Quoting in what what's recorded here in Scripture, right out of Psalm 118, are the the psalm that we used for our first reading this morning, uh, or, or rather for our call to worship, I'm sorry. And with that line, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, being so important. <laughs> you see, when construction happened on the first temple, the first thing to arrive for the construction site was the cornerstone, the, founda- the, the, the main building block on which the whole thing rests upon, the most important part of the foundation, it arrived first. But the builders didn't, apparently didn't know that it was coming. They didn't know what it was. It didn't come with any markings. So they just kind of set it aside, not knowing what to do with it. And then the rest of the stuff came in with further instructions. They start putting together the, um, uh, the rest of the foundation, but they said, hold on, where's the cornerstone? Where's literally the most important part of this? And they send word, and they said, oh, we sent it to you. And then, where is it? And then it dawned on them. The stone that they rejected was the cornerstone, the foundation that everything else was supposed to be built on. And they're left with an incomplete foundation until they put it where it belonged, and the rest of the temple was built. And it became part of their history, became part of their cherished tradition. <laughs> hey, the, the stone that we rejected, oh, it became the cornerstone. And it came, kind, of, kind of was a funny, pithy thing for the Jewish culture. Until it became a sad reality. Where indeed it did happen. Where the cornerstone of all 
their culture was pointing to, all that the law and the prophets was pointing to, the Messiah who all of salvation history was pointing towards, they rejected. Most So there's a taste of prophetic irony here that this is the psalm that they are singing as Jesus is coming into the temple, foreshadowing what was going to happen next, his coming rejection, although he was the cornerstone. I don't believe God is done with the Jewish people yet. I think I've been very clear on that the last couple of weeks. We love the Jewish people. We support the Jewish people. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem with all that's happening out in the Middle East right now. But at the same time, I do believe there's a day coming based off of my reading of the scripture where the Jewish people will recognize their Messiah and come to him the way that God had always intended. We pray for that day in the meantime, and we support and continue to love them in the meantime. But sadly, many people's religion, even people who call themselves Christians, are like those builders. Rejecting what's supposed to be the foundation. See, people construct these beautiful lives that outwardly they look so spiritual, everything looks so perfect, everything is so polished, their wording is perfect, they have all these traditions and rituals, and uh, they're always seemingly at church. Everything seems so religious, but yet Jesus has nothing to do with them. Because in their hearts, Jesus isn't there. I've had people say to my face, oh, I love the gospel, Jesus, I love your gospel. But the God, when you get down and talk to them, the gospel they believe, it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. It has everything to do with their works, their social agendas, and their, the good things they're trying to do in this life. All Again, outwardly beautiful things. But Paul would be the first person to say, well, that's no gospel at all. If you haven't put Jesus first in your life, if you haven't believed in what Jesus has done in the cross for you, So let me tell you, unless your faith is resting on the foundation, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, his works, not my own, his authority, not mine, his cross, then your religion, the Bible says, is useless. It's no gospel at all. No matter how clean your life might look like on the outside, if you have not been washed clean, you have your sins washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, it's just empty ritualism. Borrowing this foundation language, it's like a house built without a foundation. You guys tell me, how much is a house worth if it doesn't have a foundation? It's worth nothing. You can't give a house like that away. You can just push it over. There's nothing grounding it. And the same thing, if anything that we build in this life without Christ being that cornerstone, it's not going to last. But getting back to our text, what else did this people say? They've said such an important word here where they say they're calling out Hosanna. Hosanna. It's a word that means save now. Save now, Jesus. And Look, we know that it's it's unlikely that they knew exactly what they were calling upon Jesus to save them from at this point in the in the story. But it's wonderful to consider that their words were even more true than they realized that they were. That that's why Jesus came. And their words are all perfect here. 
I mean, they're calling him also the son of David, another messianic title. They knew exactly what that meant. And it's important to understand what all of this means because it's all pointing towards the end of the week. They are now proclaiming very clearly who Jesus is, why he's here. It's, this isn't even just Jesus saying who he is. The people are recognizing him as the Messiah. Save now. You're the son of David. Save in the highest. We see you on the donkey. We get it. We get the imagery. But yet, we know what happens at the end of the week. They're participating in his coronation now, but they will, the same people will be participating in his rejection later. We'll come back to that in a minute. But I, I just can't p- skip past this next part. That like, If you want to get goosebumps over the power of God, we, uh, there's one more prophecy that was also fulfilled at this same time. Not just Zechariah 9, but Daniel chapter 9, where God told us through the prophet Daniel the exact day that this would happen. Where in Daniel 9, verses 24 to 26, the prophet is told... That after the, de- the decree that went out to rebuild the temple under King Artaxerxes in 445 BC, that there would be exactly 483 years until the week when the Messiah would be, in the biblical language, cut off or killed to atone for inequity, to bring in everlasting righteousness and put an end to sin. Again, speaking about the clarity of Bible prophecy, I wonder who he's talking about. Only one person I know of who came to bring an end to sin. This has to be Jesus. And if you do the math based off of when that decree went out and you do all of that, accounting for a lot of the weird things, you know, like Israel went by 360-day years instead of 365-day years, a bunch of little weird things like that. Once you do the math, you get the exact day Jesus rides in on a donkey into Jerusalem. How cool is that? How's that for specific Bible prophecy? I mean, if you're not left in awe after I said that, I don't know what's going to do it for you. That, that is so cool. You can go look it up yourselves and see how the math is all done, but it is amazing. 600 years before Christ that was given. But sadly... The crowds couldn't see the whole picture. They didn't get it either. And we see that, hints of that beginning in verse 10, that when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They're not wrong. That's where Jesus came from. And he did have quite a prophetic ministry. The answer is inadequate. Jesus was far more than just a prophet. He didn't just come to speak to us. He came, as we said at the end of the last chapter, he came to not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In fact, Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples himself, who do men say that I am? And, you know, one of the answers that they said, people were calling him was a prophet. But Jesus then said, hey, well, well, what do you say that I am? Implying that that answer, it's not it. There's more to it. 
And then Simon Peter gave the full answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, the one who came to save us. That was the better answer. And having an incomplete answer to that question is part of the reason why their shouts of Hosanna on this day will soon turn to shouts of crucify him. See, if you don't fully understand who Jesus is, it's easier to reject him for something he's not. You know, I met one man in college while I was out evangelizing. I was with a campus ministry, and we had these little gospel surveys we were doing. And we ran into this one guy, and we introduced themselves. I was with a friend of mine. We were both kind of figuring out this evangelism thing together. And he goes, oh, I know who you are. You're one of those born-again types, aren't you? Well, I know all about that. I tried being born again, and it didn't work. I'm like, I don't think that's how that works, but I just let him keep talking. And talk he did, he had a lot of opinions, and he's going on and on and on, and obviously very passionate about what he's, what he is against. And then, you know, God just gave me a word in that moment. And I just said, you know, I skipped down to the last question that we had in our little survey, and I said, well, let me ask you a question. On a scale from one through ten, could you rate your desire to know God? And he just stared at me blankly for a minute. First time he'd been silent since I met him. And a few moments, and then he said, what? Know God? You're saying I can know God? I said, yeah. You got a couple of minutes? We ended up having a great conversation. Oh, more than an hour I talked with this guy. And he had a bunch of other issues that he was, that he had to work through. But clear, but he, he thought he knew what Jesus was about. He thought he understood what it meant to be born again. But he had no idea. He had assumed a lot, but knew very little about who God is or why Jesus truly came, what he came to save us from and how he saves us and what grace even is. And I think that's a lot of people today. Lots of people reject a Jesus who doesn't exist. Do we know the Jesus that that really is? Are we accepting the right gospel? And look, most people can recognize their need for a savior. (laughs) These people are shouting, Hosanna for a reason. They obviously wanted a savior. It was how, what Jesus came to save them from though that troubled them. They thought he was coming to bring one thing, but he came to bring salvation of a whole different other. Not just, they wanted a savior who would save them from the Romans. Jesus came to save them from something much bigger than that from sin and the tyranny it has over our lives. Again, our problem isn't that we don't want a savior. It's we have issues submitting to his terms. People love the Jesus that says your sins are forgiven. But we hate the savior that said, go and sin no more. We love the Jesus that says, oh, judge not. But people hate the fact that that verse goes on to say to warn us about coming judgment. And with that in mind, it's notable that verse 11 says that the whole city was stirred up. Jerusalem was all stirred up. And that, 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 that's almost a perfect parallel going way back to chapter 2, talking about Jesus' birth, where it says all Jerusalem was troubled. 
at news of the newborn king. And here's why that the whole city stirred up now and Jerusalem was troubled then because the presence of the true king makes all the false kings nervous. The presence of the true king makes the false kings nervous. And when we don't submit to Jesus' lordship, we're declaring ourselves to be little kings in our own lives. I'm on the throne of my own life. A throne that Jesus if you're going to have him as your savior, demands the right to. We all want Jesus to be part of our lives. The problem is, he, dec- he asks for more. We just don't want him to be king over us. We want Jesus to be like, oh, it's almost like, going back to the foundation example, we want Jesus on display over here. We want Jesus being a part over here, kind of that we can push off kind of to the side. He doesn't want that spot. He's the foundation. And that's what it's all about. Is Jesus your foundation this morning? Because let me warn you, saints. It's been said Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. What's it going to be for you? What is your choice? Be honest with yourself. Is there an area in your own life where you're not fully surrendered to Jesus Christ? Is there an area of your life where you're still clinging to your sin, an area where that's not fully submitted to him and his lordship? As you ask yourself that question, you know, I don't know what's on your mind. Neither does the person next to you. Take a moment and settle that business with God. Even when we go do our next hymn, it's okay if you don't participate, just Have a moment with God yourself. Settle that business. It's worth it. Lay it at the foot of the cross, knowing that even that sin, whatever it is for you, can be forgiven. And enjoy communion with us with a pure conscience a few minutes later. Many people won't, though. In general, people generally hold to their autonomy and their sin with a death grip until one day that, the Bible assures us, it will be pride from us. Whatever we hold on to. Not at Jesus' first coming, but at his second, where we are assured that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Church, Jesus has arrived. What are we going to do with him now? We can't pretend he's not here. Jesus has arrived. He is marched in riding on a donkey. We got to do something about this. How are we to respond? Do we submit to the lordship of our humble king? Or do we remain against him, rebelling against him in our sin? Do we cry out, Hosanna in the highest? Or crucify him? The The choice is yours, church. And I leave that to you. Amen.